Amen. Please be seated. Today we have come to Isaiah 38 and 39, so please turn with me to that portion of your Bible. I have just chapter 39 there on the insert. I will read that first, and then we'll go back and walk through chapter 38. And you can find uh, these chapters on page 599 and fi- 598 and 599 in your pew Bible. This is also the end of the first section of Isaiah, as the scholars put it. There are different ways to divide the book, but basically there are three divisions. The first division is the Book of the King, as it's called, uh, and there's a focus on, of course, to this point, uh, the kings of Israel, then to Judah, all giving us uh, this imperfect picture of kingship, which will usher in the next section, which is the Book of the Servant. Yes, the servant king, but... Jesus, the Messiah King, will look unlike any human king uh, because of what he does on behalf of his people, uh, redeeming us completely. And that's the picture of Christ starting in chapter 40. So for this summer, which I'm declaring officially beginning next week, I don't know what it is on the calendar, but that's when we're going to act like summer starts. Uh, I'm going to do a summer series because there'll be uh, some weeks I'm gone in the midst of the summer. And then we'll come back to Isaiah 40 in August. So for the summer months, I'm gonna, I have five different parables of Christ in the gospel that we'll do a textual, we'll have a textual look at each of these and then start back in Isaiah 40, the start of the second section of Isaiah uh, in August, late August, Lord willing. But today we come uh, to the end of this first section and it's actually a story out of chronological order from where we have just come. We just read about how Hezekiah was used of God uh, to deliver Judah out of the hands of the Assyrians by God's supernatural act of wiping out 185,000 troops and repelling Assyria. The event we're reading about here in chapters 38 and 39, it actually happens before Assyria lays its final siege and then Judah wins by the hand of God. So it's an episode in Hezekiah's life after he has been revived a bit in his faith but before this climactic event that we read last week. Now, why is it that Isaiah has it out of order here? I believe uh, the best understanding of this has to do with the end of this section being about the kings and about the king, and it shows the imperfection of Hezekiah. I mean, we know he's imperfect, but it might be a temptation for the Israelites reading this to think that maybe Hezekiah is that Messiah king that they've been waiting for. So Hezekiah records this, or Isaiah records this, so we are sure this is not the case. He is a fallen human being like all of us. He has faith, but it's fickle and it's frail. And so we have a, a clear picture of human kingship and why we need the real king. But it also sets up the picture of the suffering servant who thinks about his people first and himself second. And that's a struggle for Hezekiah. It's a struggle for all of us. Now, I will begin by reading chapter 39 of Isaiah, and this comes after Isaiah has been given 15 more years to live after a terrible sickness that should have killed him, but he begs God to live longer, and God gives him 15 years, and this is what Hezekiah does with some of the time he has left that God has given him, and we'll see a a very clear lesson before us. Follow as I read God's word, Isaiah 39, 1 through 8. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, 
sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouse that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our hearts are fickle and frail and all too often focused on self. We waffle in our devotion to you and our care for others. Reading of King Hezekiah, it's a bit like reading about the Apostle Peter, and it's a bit like looking into our own lives. A man who trusted you but struggled with focus on himself and making decisions in that light. Lord, we do not sit in judgment of Hezekiah, but rather in conviction about our own tendency to be weak in our faith. Maybe decisions that we have made. Maybe decisions we're faced with, that we're struggling with. We're short-sighted all too often. Lord, please give us grace. Lord, give us strength to follow you when we fail. Give us a fresh vision of Christ's victory on our behalf that always stands. Glorify yourself in the building up of your people this day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You have the benefit of being the second audience to hear the sermon, so when I think through the first time about some things I would say differently, I can say them to you. Because as I thought about the message here, what we see Hezekiah doing, and how all of us, everyone in this room, has a, multi- a myriad of decisions we made in the past that we regret. And the last thing I want to do is heap judgment and guilt upon you for things that you have been forgiven of by Christ. There's no decision you have made in the past that God cannot give you forgiveness for if you've asked for it. And Christ covered this with his blood. So I don't want anyone to walk out thinking of all the things in the past that you can't undo. Now, there may be some things that come to your mind that you haven't made right, that you have within your power something you can do to see reconciliation or made right. So I don't want the conviction of the Spirit to stop you there. But I don't want anyone, no child of God, to walk out uh, overwhelmed again with the thing that God's freed you from. But when we have examples like this, it gives us a fresh outlook that can help us going forward. And so that's what I hope to see gained by us as we look at Hezekiah's life and what drove him to make a terrible decision, a decision that cost 
the people he was called to protect greatly. Because that's what happens. When we become self-absorbed, we make decisions that are bad because they're short-sighted, and they end up having lasting impact, uh, impact way beyond we ever thought they might have. Now, there's lots of smaller things in your life you could probably think of. I, I have a lot of them. I could spend the rest of the hour telling you decisions like this, but I remember a few that just really stand out. And early on in our marriage, we had almost no money, just a little money in the bank to buy another car. I mean like 1500 bucks, because we could not have Sherry go to school and then me go to work downtown. And so she trusted me to buy a car, another car. I mean, that should be a thing you can trust your husband with. But when I came back with a 1973 Monte Carlo with a 454 that got 11 miles to the gallon in it, she looked at it like, that's probably not the car we needed. But it was only 1500 bucks because I bought it off a kid who the judge told because of so many speeding tickets he had to get rid of it. So I bought it for him. I'm him. And I quickly understood how it can exceed the speed limit in an amazing pace. You would not imagine how fast it goes from zero to 60 and how fast you can go in a quarter mile. I mean, these are all important things, decisions you make about an economical car to drive you back and forth to school while your wife's going to college and you're saving for seminary. Doesn't it make good sense? Decisions we make sometimes because they feel good to us at the moment defy what is the right view in the future. I remember my mother telling me, don't ride Richie Forbes' ATC because you'll break your leg or something like it. Sure, Mom, whatever, and, you know, it was cool to ride it, and I wanted to ride it, and I rode it, and I broke my leg. Why are you laughing at that? That's not funny at all. All right, there's just, a, I mean, I, can, I honestly, I could be here all day, and you would, you would renounce me as your pastor because I'd have so many of these things. We make decisions like these, and these seem somewhat innocent because they're not long-lasting in their impact the way that other decisions we make uh, have impact. And there are painful things in your life, choices you made back when you were in college or back when you weren't walking with the Lord or, or you were but you just ignored what you knew to be true and you did something and it has caused all sorts of a uh, ripple effect. Uh, we know this on a national level. Um, there's a way in which our nation as a whole has utterly squandered what was given to us as a spiritual heritage. And now we are seeing compromises made that will leave a legacy of horrific things to come. And that's a story of many, maybe all the nations, and all nations that oppose God for sure. So we can become overwhelmed. I don't want that to be the purpose. I want the purpose of overviewing this story is to see what God's teaching us about his Messiah, who will be unlike this king, Hezekiah, and unlike us, who can bear up the things that we fail at so that we can have victory through him. But it will also help us on the immediate term. Maybe there's a decision you have to make right this week that you can stop and pause and think now having heard what we're reading here. Because I know that any week I would preach this, there's some major decision you're about to make this coming week or some action you have to take. And this could hopefully, by the Spirit's work in your life, keep you from making a self-centered decision. Because a self-centered heart, instead of a God-centered heart, will lead to short-sighted decisions and actions and leave a tragic legacy. We see it laid out before us in this story. Go back to chapter 38. I read chapter 39 on your insert, but chapter 38 on page 598 of your Pew Bible tells what led up to this. And we already see some of the problems in Hezekiah's thinking and in his heart that lead to the decision he makes about these Babylonian envoys. Remember, this is before the final victory over Assyria, but Hezekiah is revived a bit in his faith. 
And we have an episode where he gets deathly sick. And it seems as though it will be unto death. And in this, Hezekiah says and does some things that starts to indicate to us some wrong thinking on the part of the king. Chapter 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Now, this is hard to wrestle when you think of God's sovereignty. And what does this mean? And how does God work this? Because it seems like he changes his mind. But we see episodes like this displayed where God will interchange with someone in a way is to bring them along in their faith and in what he's going to do through their life. This is one such episode as he uses Isaiah to give this message. Hezekiah, verse 2, turned his face to the wall because he can't even stand. That's how sick he is. Turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, I think this starts to tell us something about Hezekiah's focus. You notice he doesn't say, Lord, you have promised you'll deliver us from Assyria, and I want to see how this works out. Remember, Hezekiah was concerned for the glory of God before the nations. He doesn't say, Lord, please let me live long enough to see the nations recognize your display. That's not what he prays. He's just worried about his own life at this point. He's scared to die physically. He's a man who just doesn't want to die. He wept bitterly. I mean, this is a man who has a prophet speaking to him directly. He sees the hand of God. He should be resting in that no matter what happens with his days on earth. But he weeps bitterly, and there's no indications because he's sad that he won't see with his own eyes what God has done. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. There's a sense in which God answers for him what should be the desire of his heart to see that deliverance. It doesn't say Hezekiah wanted that. It just says that's what God will do. If you look at the whole of Hezekiah's life compared to the other kings, he is a great king. He's a good king in so many respects. But he is still a sinful king, a fickle and frail king like we are people. And so the response in chapter 38 is a psalm or a lament that Hezekiah writes to describe his experience. And I want you to be critical as you read this because the text does not say, like the psalmist writes, this is truth that we would sing in the church, like the psalms say. This is simply a a king who's a believer writing what he feels. And we can analyze just what it tells us concerning his feelings, how they write, and how it might inform who he is as a person, and impact the decisions and actions he takes. Verse 9, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. This indicates a bit of ignorance on the part of Hezekiah concerning the afterlife. To be fair, the Old Testament is not replete with teaching concerning the afterlife, but there's enough there. And if Hezekiah had been a student of the word, he would have known there was the promise of Abraham's bosom, the sense of being in a place that's at peace, 
um, that there would be a resurrection. I mean, even Job understood this, who was one of the oldest figures in the Scripture, that he knew that, he would, that his Redeemer lived and he would see his Redeemer face-to-face with his own eyes. So there is a teaching about uh, paradise or being with God. It wasn't just Sheol or the grave that they're consigned to. But Hezekiah's perspective, uh, it's, it's at least ignorant here. Verse 11, I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. I won't be in this earth. It'll be terrible. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. These are all the thoughts, the true and honest thoughts he had when he realized he would die. Verse 13, I calm myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. It seems, uh, it is an honest plea for sure. We wouldn't want to knock what is written here for us to read, but I think it is meant for us to analyze and to see that his, his love for this temporary life is lacking the perspective of what is to come and how we can trust in God with what comes next. Now, from our perspective, having the whole of Scripture completed, we have a much fuller picture and all the more reason for us to not fear death. Yes, the process of dying, nobody wants to think of it, but death itself, to know that that is actually God's working of our full salvation to glory. Verse 17 in chapter 38. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. He's very honest. It's, It's about his own self. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. And that's a glorious statement, but it's mixed. His bitterness had to do with his own welfare. That's that self-focus. But he sees God's grace to him. Verse 18, for Sheol does not, does, uh, does not thank you. That's the grave. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not have hope of your faith for your faithfulness. Which by the way, opposes exactly something written by David in the Psalms when he said, I go down in the pit, the slimy pit, and you were there, and you lift me up from the slimy pit. But Hezekiah, immature in his faith, like so many, speaks in this way. Verse 19, the living, the living, he thanks you, as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and will play my music on the stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. We're going to have a party. We're going to worship God. We're going to celebrate that I'm still alive. He just seems to be missing that he would still be alive even if he died physically. His preoccupation with being saved from the sickness led him to make decisions that were bent towards himself. Let's pause and say that one of the best ways to head off bad decisions or bad actions on our part is simply to be immersed in what God says is true. Uh, to study it, to know it, because in the times that you'll need it, it will come to bear. I can only say to you that in the years that I have done ministry and been part of ministry, I can see a sharp difference, especially in the last days of somebody's life. A sharp difference between the person who's well-grounded in what the Word teaches and someone who is not. Both believers, 
their eternal salvation is not in peril because someone's immature, but the difference in how they face those last days and the kind of glory they can give to God in the process is, is, is exactly relative to how much they know to be true because that's, what, that's the anchor that holds them and the words they speak speak in light of what they know to be true. Still honest, but more mature than what Hezekiah says here. And Hezekiah, driven by this self-centeredness, uh, he acts out on this self-centeredness eventually. I love how Martin Luther, speaking of probable death, he was sure he would die. Many of his friends did die during the Reformation era. And he said, even in the best of health, we should have death always before our eyes so that we will not expect to remain on this earth forever, but we'll have one foot in the air, so to speak. Jonathan Edwards said in one of his resolutions, he wrote 70 of them, things that he read over and over and over again in his life, resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Be ready for that, believer, because you don't have to fear it. It's coming, and you are safe in Christ, and something better is yet to come. God's will is for you, is before you now on earth as long as you have days. And this is the very thing that drove Paul by the Spirit when he said, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I cannot tell. I can take it either way, whatever God's will is. That's the mature faith growing, uh, showing itself. Hezekiah is struggling. He doesn't have this mature faith at this point. God's working this in him, but we have on display his decisions and actions that come from really what amounts to a self-centeredness, a self-absorption even, a self-preservation. Verse 1 now, chapter 39, we see the troubling actions from King Hezekiah. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, recognize what's happening. Babylon is to, if you look on the map, Babylon, you know where Israel is. Babylon is to the east. And it's an upstart rising power. But Assyria has put them down several times. In fact, this particular leader, twice defeated by the Assyrians. Um, but he personally survived these attacks. And even from exile, he was getting, uh, sending out messengers to try to conjure up other people to try to mount a counteroffensive on Assyria. Now, this is before the huge army of Sennacherib died at the hand of God, and so there's, Assyria is still the power to be, but Babylon's trying to be nice to everyone and recognizes the stronghold of Jerusalem, no doubt, and recognizes Hezekiah's leadership and that he had survived a sickness and sends an, uh, an embassy, if you will, to go talk to them, uh, ambassadors. Verse 2, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show him. See, he's so self-focused that he wants to show all his stuff. He doesn't say, let me tell you how God saved me from sickness. He says, let me show you everything I've got. Uh, see how powerful this is. See all the all the stuff that I've accumulated from my fathers. He's not viewing Babylon as a threat at this point because they don't seem to be. In fact, they seem friendly, sort of like Egypt. And so he's letting them know, hey, I got something to contribute if we should form an alliance at some point. Look what I've got. And he's just 
very, very innocently showing who will be their eventual enemies all this stuff. What could he have been thinking? Oswald, who comments on this passage, says, here is a wonderful opportunity for, Isaac, for Hezekiah to declare the glory of God to the nations. Hezekiah could have used the visit to tell the story of what the sole God of the universe did for him. But instead of making God look good, Hezekiah takes the opportunity to make himself look good. How often when we have opportunity with someone do we talk about ourselves and not our God? He showed off God's material blessings rather than showing off God. He was trying to get the Babylonian people to respect him rather than being content with what God's perspective of him was, the most important consideration. He was wanting the sense of security, even despite all that he had wrestled with God concerning Assyria leading up to the siege, despite all he had learned in that, he's still here finding himself vacillating back towards allying with Babylonians now. After all, they came to admire my stuff, admire me. Then Isaiah enters. Verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They come to me. And I think the accent here is how often the personal pronoun is used by Hezekiah. They have come to me. They come to us, Judah. They came to me from a far country, Babylon. Maybe you heard of it. Hezekiah doesn't really answer Isaiah's question in full, does he? In verse 4, Isaiah says in response, Okay, what have they seen? What did you show them? Hezekiah probably put off that this prophet would question him. They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. You did what? Isaiah most likely was thinking. A self-centered heart, instead of a God-centered one, leads to short-sighted decisions and actions that leave a tragic legacy. The mission of Israel at this stage in redemption history was simply to display the glory of God by their obedience to God and his covenant and show forth through the temple and through what was done in the sacrifices how God would provide for salvation, but they were to stay pretty closed. They were supposed to stay uh, distinct from the pagan heathen nations. Now, they could have connect with other nations by way of evangelism, like this is what the true and living God says and does. And they were also warned what that would mean. It would mean wars, it would mean battles, but God would fight them for it. But eventually, eventually, Israel would bring Messiah, and the way of the gospel become clear as it came to pass. So there's opportunity to declare the glory of God here. But instead, he's declaring the glory of Hezekiah. And that's the problem. Each of us, brothers and sisters, are confronted with decisions on a daily basis. I just mentioned, I'm sure you have some this week. If they're based on selfishness or self-focus or self-promotion, and you have to be honest about this because you can, you can, I can make a good excuse to my wife for why I need the 73 Monte Carlo. All us guys could. But in reality, if my decision's already made because I'm not really entertaining godly wisdom, I just have already decided, but I'll paint it like it's godly wisdom, that's where the trouble occurs because it's in our heart and we can hide it. Each person, each one here has been given relationship stewardships. You have friendships with people. You have uh, family relationships. There are stewardships from God that you're to cultivate in his, for his honor. But 
there could be decisions that you are called to make regarding them that could alter those relationships, and you know what they are. Are we making them for selfish reasons in our marriages, or are we making them to lay our life down for the other one? Each person's been given a sexual stewardship, which is so contorted in our day. What we do with our bodies and our minds makes a lasting impact. And youthful indiscretions can become total nightmares for the story of your life. You don't think they will because everyone says it's okay, but then 10 years later when you're still psychologically damaged over the thing you did back in college, it doesn't look so silly anymore. It doesn't look, or it looks a whole lot more serious. Parents, we're given a stewardship with our children. It is easier many days just to say yes rather than no because we want to be liked. We don't want our children to dislike us or be mad at us or think we're mean. So it's just easier to say yes, and it avoids the whole battle, which is what? Selfish, because it's just what I want right now for peace. It makes me feel better. But in the end, I'm just wrecking them because they'll have no discipline. They'll have no clarity about what God's called them to, and they'll hate you for it at the end of the day. It'll actually backfire. Selfishness in the area of our financial stewardship, how we manage the resources God gives us personally and corporately as a church, as the people of God. If we're selfish about how we view these things, we'll make bad, short-sighted decisions that have a lasting impact and fail to, at least on a human level, do the work of multiplying the kingdom of God and the work of God before all mankind. Now, there's some tragic words that follow up these that we have already seen that close the chapter out. These are a combination of tragic words. They're tragic words that come from Isaiah when he declares what will happen as a result, as a result of Hezekiah, Hezekiah's waffling here. And then also just tragic, terrible words from Hezekiah himself that make us sad. Surely Hezekiah was not intending to bring harm upon Judah. And the blame for Judah's exile is not squarely on Hezekiah. Hezekiah is just the sum total of where Judah was heading. So it's not meant to say that if Hezekiah made a better choice at this very moment, then they never would have gone into exile. But he wasn't thinking about his people, or he wasn't thinking about Judah, he was thinking about himself. Verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts, because of what he did in showing all this stuff. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, it'll be carried to Babylon. You know, these guys you just let in and show everything, they're going to take it away from you, and they're going to take it back to ba- Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. What, what are you talking about, Hezekiah? Saying, Assyria is our problem, not Babylon. These guys can help us. Whoa, what did you just say? Who do you need? Do you need Babylon? Do you need Egypt? Do you need Assyria? Or do you need God? You've forgotten already. And as a result, all the stuff you have that you think is so great or manifests how great you are will be stripped because you're not that great. No, none of us are. And here's the worst part. This is the long-lasting legacy that's so difficult. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Whoa. That's rough. I mean, if all of us could think about how we might bring shame to our children by what we do now, had a clarity of it. I think it would give us pause, but all of us have to admit that even when we know how it can bring shame to our children, we still do things that we do. This long-lasting legacy on the basis of a short-term 
short-sighted, selfish decision. And this is the part that's most tragic, though. What Hezekiah says. He is so self-absorbed. Verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Spare my sons. That's not what he says. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. I'll take the 15 years. Okay, I'll, I'll take the 15 years. I don't care what the cost is. Heal me from this. Give me the 15. That's good. But didn't you just hear everything he said? I think he's so absorbed with his own situation. Now he's saved out of it. He's not going to die. He doesn't listen to everything that God is saying about what will occur. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. And then it reveals what he was thinking. It's only God can do. We can't guess what other people think, but God can tell us what other people think. And he tells us what is in the mind of Hezekiah. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Now give Hezekiah the benefit of the doubt. He has lived in a tumultuous time, constant and regular threat. People he knows surely have died in wars and battles with Assyria and others. It's been a very difficult road, watching all sorts of chaos and turmoil and even some sense of anarchy in his own midst. And here he's got the promise of, living 15 years and having peace and security, at least the way he describes it, I'll take it at any cost. I'll take peace and security now and leave the future for my children to worry about. A self-centered nation will make short-sighted decisions and actions that leave a lasting legacy that is tragic for its children. A self-centered heart in me or in a new, instead of a God-centered one, can lead to short-sighted decisions and actions that leave a tragic legacy. I know many of you, all of us to some degree, have experienced this a bit in our own lives. And thankfully for the, thankful for the cleansing blood of Christ and the Spirit's renewal in our life that brings redemption to those things. Alec Moyer writes, Hezekiah was one of the most truly human of the kings, and his portrait here accords with what is recorded elsewhere. He was a man whose heart was genuinely moved toward the Lord, but whose will was fickle under pressure and under temptations that life brought. Like David, who was his ancestor, and unlike the greater David, who was his descendant, his first thoughts were for himself. I love what Frank Barker, who was one of the fathers of the PCA, wrote in um, a devotional about this passage. He imagines what he imagines what Hezekiah might have said to the envoys and made this whole situation different. Barker says, "What if Hezekiah had said, "I'm so glad you're here. Let me show you the temple first. Let me show you where we worship the true God who created the world." He's not like little tribal gods or national gods. He is the creator of the world. This temple can't contain God. The universe can't contain him. But he manifests his presence here in a unique way to show how he can be approached. That innermost part of the holiest of all is where, in a unique way, he manifests his presence over the Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, contains the Ten Commandments. Now, we don't keep those commandments as we should. But God has made a way for us to be forgiven. Do you see this altar over here? We offer the blood of a lamb, a perfect lamb here. And then the high priest takes the lamb's blood and covers our sins as he sprinkles it between the cherubim on the top of the ark once a year on the Day of Atonement. We're saved by God sending a Savior. That's how we're saved. That's how we're right with that God. 
Do you see this, Babylonian envoys? This is the word of God, the God who created everything. He has revealed himself through the prophets. Would you like a copy of this? I could get Isaiah to get you a copy of this. That's a great lesson for us. I hope it inspires you and not brings you down. How might you manifest your God to people this week? In the decision you are faced with, how can that decision be made in a way that manifests the glory of God? Don't worry about what's behind you. You can't change that. But what comes now? Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me into the way everlasting. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, so many regrets about decisions we have made. We claim the blood of Christ. We rest upon his finished work, his work that you accepted. We know you accepted it because you did not leave him in the grave, but you raised him again. And so we have eternal life through Christ. And so we are sorry for these ways in which we have made selfish decisions. But now, O oh Lord, we look to you for strength as we make a decision this week about something or the next month that comes before us. Uh, we'll have many things that we'll have to decide or act upon. I pray, God, that you would give us a vision for how we might manifest your glory in the decisions we make. God, we know you will not leave us. You will not forsake us. You love us. We are your children. You give us your spirit as a deposit so that we may say, Abba, Father. And so it's in that humble light that we come to you and ask for strength to do things that glorify you and not ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond uh, to the word of God preached by turning to 348, a song that really is like a prayer for the church. We'll stand and sing verses 1 through 4 as the elders come to prepare the table. <laughs>